Well, good morning once more. Please open with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 18 today, or more accurately, continuing, I should say, in verse 18 through 23. Follow along with me as I read aloud here what John says. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son is the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John's main point is that those who profess Christ with their lips, but deny Him with their theology, are antichrists. Those who profess Christ with their lips, but deny Him with their theology, are actually antichrists. So let me just situate us in the text so far, we've seen what it means and what it looks like to walk in the light as opposed to fraudulent claims to do so. We've seen an affirmation from John that his audience knows he who is from the beginning has overcome the evil one, knows the Father. And then we got John's first imperative last week, do not love the world. And we're going to get another first this week, which is John's switching tone to warning. To warning. After he says who he believes them to be, that is to say those who are in Christ, and after he tells them, do not love the world, he's going to issue a warning here. But I want to try to create, recreate some of the feel that John is writing into. Because you have to appreciate this particularly for this section to make sense. Maybe all of 1 John, but let me just try to recreate the feel. Have you ever known someone that you, hopefully everyone can identify at least one person who you've known, who has served faithfully in the church? You've known them. Maybe you've shared meals with them, been friends with them. And at a certain point, for whatever reason, they came to believe things, different things, significantly different things than what, had been, than what had been faithfully proclaimed to them and what they believed. They began to adopt views of either who God is or how to live in light of who He is that clashed dramatically with what they had received with what they had believed 
And this person who you love, that you knew, perhaps you even admired, departs. Of course, they don't claim that they're leaving the faith. They just claim that they've come to understand it in a more nuanced way, unlike you, regrettably. They've come to understand a new angle on things. But they're more robustly in the faith now than ever, they'll say. But you have your deep suspicions because they're not disagreeing about some peripheral theological debate. They're disagreeing about fundamental truths and doctrines of the Christian life, who God is and how to live before Him. Hopefully everyone can think of at least one person where you're like, it's almost shocking. I never, ever would have predicted that. Now imagine tons of people doing it. A whole group of people, not leaving because of social justice issues or of a polarizing political cycle, not, not, not that kind of a church. It's not a church split over that kind of thing. It's people who are departing out of your congregations in mass. Because they are saying this same thing. They have a unified or semi-unified story about coming to believe these things. That they, you know, after further reflection, where they were a newer believer, hey, you know, they didn't really know. But once they were committed to learning and growing, they, they kind of discovered these things. And now they're going in this direction. Not just one, not just that person you knew, but many of them. It might be enough to cause you to go, did, did I'm like, maybe I'm off. I don't want to be the person who just always thinks I'm right. Man, I mean, all of these people going out? Maybe I need to go back and rethink some of this stuff. That's the situation John's writing into. That is the community of faith that he is affirming and why he keeps saying what you have learned from the beginning. Calling them back to what they have learned from the beginning as opposed to what these folks that we're going to see today have said, have taught, and then they're heading out. He, underst he understands that these people are, are rattled. It's naive of us to think, oh, it was probably just the visitors that were departing these churches. It was just probably people on the periphery. No. These are people who were in. And they went out from us, as we'll see, including John's own church, most likely. It's so, what's happened is so obvious that John doesn't even really need to describe it. He, he, under, he understands that his audience will immediately know what he's talking about. And so John writes to this group of people who have watched who they believe to be brothers and sisters in Christ, go out from them, continue to profess Christ, but they deny Him when they actually get to what they believe. Or, you might say, their theology of Christ. And so we read this. Children. Children. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now... Many antichrists have come. 
last hour in John corresponds to the last days, theologically speaking. It's this kind of last, the final period of history before the consummation of all things. It is an order that is characterized by the ruins of the fall. It is characterized by the evil one having power. And yet what makes it the last hour, as we've already seen, is that the light is breaking in and the darkness is fading away. That's what we read about last time. The world is passing away along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. This is the last hour. And one further thing that characterizes the last hour, as John's audience apparently was very well aware, is the Antichrist. Now, this is John is the only author in the New Testament who uses the word Antichrist. As much as you heard people say it, you think it's in every, you know, every biblical author's language. It's only in John. Only in John. And it's only in the letters of John in the book. Well, it's really it's really only the letters of John. Antichrist. But certainly there is other testimony to this Antichrist. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we do get a description of this Antichrist in Revelation. And it is this man who opposes God, not just by lying, but in one sense is setting himself up against Christ. Is kind of a competing Christ, doing even amazing things, a pseudo-Christ. So this is reserved for the end, the end of the end. And so what John is doing, once more, we should be, we should be expecting this now, is he is taking something that is reserved for the very end, and he is backing it up into the present. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. This is part of what they received from the beginning. He's like, but let me tell you something. Antichrist coming in the end. But I'm telling you, there are many Antichrists, and they're already here. How we can know it's the last hour. Just like the light's breaking in and the darkness going away, Antichrists have begun to break in. That's what he says. And, and given the expectations for the Antichrist, I mean, you read 2 Thessalonians 2, um, this might be truly shocking for John's audience. Like, wait a second, I don't see anybody walking around. I mean, I see people just went out from us, but I didn't see anyone who I would call the Antichrist. It's just people who are wrong. Where is it? Where are they? And teasing that out is going to be the central burden of this passage. Teasing that out is going to be the central burden of this passage. But without clarifying it yet, John says that, therefore, because... Antichrists, many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now, it's not immediately obvious, I would say. It's not immediately obvious. I mean, you do have the already not yet piece in the parallels. But it's not immediately obvious why antichrists, how directly that relates to identifying the last hour. Okay? But after reflection, this is one of those that you can't overthink, though. After reflection, here seems to be what John is, John is saying. How did the presence of many antichrists now indicate that it's the last hour? Well, because it seems clear enough that if the last hour refer, refers to this period inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Christ, to be anti the person and the work of Christ confirms that it's the last hour because you have to actually be against the Christ who brought all those things in. Okay, let me give you an illustration. If I call somebody anti-gun, say I'm labeling someone anti-gun, okay? By default, I am acknowledging by being anti-gun, or not by being anti-gun, by calling someone anti-gun, that they uh, that there are guns, 
that they work in certain powerful ways and that this someone is against the way they have been used or are used. In other words, to be anti-something presupposes the something, right? That seems to be the idea. If you're against Christ, you're saying Christ has come. But when Christ comes, it's the last hour. Therefore, anti-Christ indicate that we're here in the final hour. That seems to be what John is suggesting. It's a default acknowledgement of the person and work of Christ and then being against that to be anti-Christ. And he says, in 19, they, these antichrists, went out from us. They went out from our churches. They went out from our fellowships. You all know them, John says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They weren't of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so these antichrists, again, is not this mysterious faction of people with monkey bones and crystal balls and, and necromancy somewhere out there. It is a group of folks coming out of the so-called Johannine community, that is the community of believers to which John is writing, that everyone would have known, including John himself. He includes it. They went out from us. He includes himself in that. His own church. But they weren't of us. They went out from us, but they weren't of us. They were in with us in one sense, but not in another sense. They were, you know, to borrow from John's Gospel, you might say they were physically connected to the vine, but they weren't vibrantly abiding in the vine. In John's theology, there's a way to be in, but not in. And that's what he's saying. Yes, were they among us? Yes. Did they worship with us? Yes. Did we share the supper together? Yes. Yes. But they weren't of us, even so. He presents this diagnostic conclusion first, and then he gives the reason. How do we know they were not of us? You're, I mean, you're giving us the conclusion, but how, how, how do we know that? Here, answer. No one who was truly of us would have gone out. Their going out made it obvious that they are not among those walking in the light and never were. If they had been truly in... They would have continued with us. And to be very clear, I just want this to be abundantly clear. He isn't talking about switching churches or you know, leave a church split because of personal grievances or something like that. That is not what's happening. He's talking not about leaving a particular church. He's talking about departing the community, going out from the community of people who know the Father, have the forgiveness of sins, and have overcome the evil one. Okay? They went out from that community. We might call it now something like deconstruction, which is a junk drawer for a ton of different things. But one of those things is something like, well, I'm rethinking the faith and pulling it down to, to nothing but still pretending it's Christianity. And the upshot for John's audience and, and for us too is this, that true believers always endure. The logic of this passage is decisive. It is decisive. Departing from the faith, abandoning Christ is the clearest indicator that someone never genuinely knew God. 
That's what it says. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. Not just continued at our local church. Remember, His us is very large. They went out from those walking in the light. And if they were truly walking in the light, they would never have gone out from the light. And John wants his people to know this. Why? Because otherwise, you would entertain the opposite conclusion, wouldn't you? That they, they had come to know the Father. They had come to know Him who was from the beginning. They had overcome the evil one. And then, somehow, they didn't. So, somehow, it all went kaput. John is trying to explain to a community of folks rattled by people who have left that they knew and they lived alongside. He's trying to explain how on earth these folks could go out. John is the one who said, I give them eternal life. Well, Jesus said it. John recorded, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so he's offering an explanation of why to all appearances that just happened. Looks like a bunch of folks just got snatched. And he says, if they were actually in the Father's hand, they never would have gone out. They were frauds. They were good-looking frauds, too. They looked good. They kept it shiny at church. Kept it shiny in your home. But they were frauds. And then he introduces this very strong contrast between those who have gone out, these antichrists, and the beloved children to whom he is writing. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Seems like we get an insight into what these folks who went out seem to have been saying. At least a part of what was problematic, to all appearances, is that they were claiming some kind of special insight, some kind of special knowledge, perhaps in light of some special anointing from God. It gave them privileged perspective into things that other believers just didn't have. There's no fault of their own. They hadn't been anointed in this way. They hadn't been anointed in this way. They kind of developed a higher resolution view of things, you might say. They developed the faith that hadn't been received from the beginning. And if that's the case, John is saying to his audience, actually, it's you all who have the anointing. It's you all who have knowledge. This word, chrisma, chrisma, this translated anointed, it's actually in the Greek, it's anointing. They just translated it so it doesn't sound as odd. You received an anointing, whatever. But the, 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 it's only found here in, in verse 27, where it appears twice in the entire New Testament. Not a, common, not a common word. However, with one metaphorical exception, the verb to anoint is consistently used in the New Testament to describe something that God does through the instrument of the Holy Spirit. That is the consistent usage of the verb to anoint, again with one metaphorical instance in the book of Hebrews. 
And so it's almost certain that John is describing the anointing that the readers have received from the Holy One, understood as a reference to the Holy Spirit that they received when they first believed from the beginning. It confirms to them the message that they received is true. That's exactly what Jesus said that the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit would do. He would call to mind the things that Jesus taught for His disciples. And so John, being confirmed in the Holy Spirit himself, is imparting this knowledge and this even this encouragement, this buttressing to this audience. It isn't clear if the reference to the Holy One here is to the Holy Spirit or Jesus. And that's because in John, uh, Jesus is the, John 20, 22, John, uh, Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. We probably shouldn't be trying to parse out and make really fine distinctions here at this point. But in one case, if it was, if Holy One is understood to be um, Holy Spirit, then it says you've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. The other would be that they have been anointed by the anointed one, which is Christ, the Messiah. Remember Hebrew, Messiah, the anointed one? Mashiach, the Hebrew transliterated, the Latinized, and then Christos. So we got Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, not Jesus' last name, right? Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one. So either it's you've been anointed by, and it's a reference to Christ, the Holy One, the anointed one, and it's still with the Holy Spirit, or you've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, it's not clear a ton hangs on it. The primary point doesn't change, and that is, as a result, they know. There's a textual variant here, and the folks tried to clean it up for you. It really has no direct object. Know all things, it's not there. Probably in in textual variants, you you generally want to prefer the more difficult reading, because it was more likely that a scribe would make it easier to understand than than more confusing to understand. It literally just says, no, that you all know. End. That's it. No direct object. I would suggest that it's probably better to say something like, you all are in the know. That's how we would phrase, that's how we would phrase it. You all are in the know with no direct object. Because you've received an anointing from the Holy One, because you have the Spirit, y'all are already in the know. You're already in the know. And don't we hear this language again from Jeremiah 31 that we heard last time? In the new covenant, what will happen? No one will need to teach his neighbor, tell his neighbor, know the Lord, brother, know the Lord, sister, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. John says, you're in the know. You're in the know, unlike these people who went out from us. But you, remember, contrast, but you have received an anointing from the Holy One. And that is exactly why he's writing to them. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. He isn't calling them back to the truth. He's writing to them because they believe the truth. And he doesn't want them to be shaken by thinking that they actually don't, by very confident people who they have been alongside perhaps for years, we don't know, who have gone out from them. Claiming that they have a more developed faith or keener insight or something. Maybe there's more mature, come to see things that conflict with what was delivered. He says, I don't write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Now, 
initially just sound, kind of sounds like a tautology here. He's he, okay, you know, lies are lies aren't true, and true, you know, truths aren't lies. Like okay, well, that's like literally definitionally true. Maybe he's doing something more. I think you're right. I think what he's likely getting at is is that these people have gone. That the people that have gone, excuse me, are putting wrapping, very Christian wrapping paper on what they're saying. It is a lie that is packaged in truth. It comes from truth, not in the sense that it legitimately follows, but that it is a distorted understanding of the truth that has some of the remnants and particles of the truth mixed in with it. So, it's to be very clear, these folks aren't claiming to be apostate. The folks who have gone out are not saying themselves. They are not saying, I'm abandoning the faith, I'm abandoning Jesus, I'm done with the gospel. That's not what they're saying. They're holding on to it. That's why it's rattling to these folks. They're holding on to it and just saying things that are incompatible with what John's audience has been taught in claiming to have this fuller understanding. And John says what they're actually doing is lying. You know, once you nuance something so much, it literally can become the opposite of what it started as. And that's what he's saying. They may say this, but what it boils down to is this. Oh, they may say this, but what it boils down to at the end of the day when you take off the Christian wrapping paper is this. Is this. And then he gives us the, the most crystal clear insight so far into the primary error of the secessionists. He says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. How can John call these folks duplicitous liars? Because what they are saying, either explicitly or implicitly, denies that Jesus is the Messiah. That He is the Christ. The Anointed One who has come in fulfillment of the promises. We don't know exactly how they were denying it, but they were. And their denial outs them as liars. As liars. And not just a run-of-the-mill liar, but a kind of a liar that makes you against Christ, an anti-Christ. This is consistent with how John uses it elsewhere. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus has come in the flesh is the spirit of the antichrist. 1 John 4, 3. Any who do not confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh is the antichrist. 2 John 7. There is something about what they are doing denying that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and that He was, in fact, the Son. Now, based on this, there's a lot of ink wasted and a ton of unfruitful doctoral dissertations penned trying to identify the precise heresy of this community. Like, what is it? And uh, docetism is the primary, uh, I would say, the leading conclusion that taught that Jesus had this kind of celestial phantom-like body and not a human body, so he didn't come in the flesh. He came in like spirit flesh or something uh, like that. But here's the truth. We don't know. 
That speculation seems to work. I mean, it's consistent with what we just read about the Antichrist, but we just don't know. There are many ways to deny that Jesus is the Christ who's come in the flesh. We don't know, but, but, but they did. They denied it explicitly or implicitly. Now, initially, you might find it odd that Antichrist denied the Son and the Father instead of just the Son. But the next verse clarifies why that's the case. But let's just not miss this. John sneaks in here an explicit reference to the divinity of Jesus, doesn't he? And not just God. He identifies him as the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Very, very clear. This is the Antichrist. He who denies Christ. Oh, that's not what it says. He identifies Christ with the Son, the divine second person of the Trinity. Can't pass. That's a very high Christology right there. Jesus is not just God. He is within the Trinitarian framework, God the Son, who comes as a package deal with the Father. He says, whoever, excuse me, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's very simple. You deny the Son, you don't have the Father. You confess the Son, you have the Father. In logic, that creates a biconditional. So it works the other way around too. You don't have the Father, you don't have the Son. You have the, you have the Father, you have the Son. Package deal. One Johannine scholar says, the author here does not spell out why this is so. But from statements he makes later in the letter, we can infer that the denial of the Son involves a denial of the Father for two reasons. One, it was the Father who sent the Son, 1 John 4.10. And two, it is the Father who bears testimony to the Son, 1 John 5, 9 and 10. And so it is simply not possible to reject the Son but somehow keep the Father or reject the Father but somehow hold claim to the Son who has come in the flesh, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. And that's where John leaves things before moving in the need to abide in what they have heard and that we'll return to next week. John wants his audience to know that those who profess Christ with their lips but deny Him with their theology and then the action that flows from that, because action always flows from belief, are antichrists. Are antichrists. Well, I only have time for one focused point in terms of practicing the truth, but it is a very important one that I want us to consider together, and that is the importance of owning your theology. Owning your theology. You know the quickest way to be shaken, maybe even sucked in yourself into horribly distorted theology or Christian ethics, even if it doesn't go all the way to denying the Father and the Son. You know how? The quickest way to do that? Not knowing theology for yourself. Not knowing the Bible. Plain and simple. There is one thing that causes me to scream inside. It's when one Christian leans over to another Christian and asks, what do we believe about this? Of course, I've been asked that before. What do we believe about this? My answer is something like, I don't know know about we. I know what I believe. Sounds like you don't know what you believe. So you should probably come to some conclusions there. 
faith by proxy and belief by proxy is not something that works. It is not something that stands up to challenges. It is something that will float you in congregations and circumstances where it doesn't take any hits, isn't under any scrutiny, isn't the subject of any difficulty. Knowing the Bible for yourself, knowing what has been delivered from the beginning, right here, is important because otherwise you will end up putting your faith in people or traditions. Maybe your feelings in some cases. And you'll have to say, my under understanding of who God is and what He's done depends on this person or this tradition being reliable. I'm putting my trust in a man, maybe in some cases a woman, or a tradition. Instead of my understanding of who God is and what He's done and how to live rightly before Him flows out of what I am persuaded the text of Scripture says when interpreted in the Christian community. And that last part is critical. Not un interpreted by a tree, under a tree, by yourself, in isolation. Which leads to heresy. <laughs> That's the consistent. You want a heresy? Go take the Bible and just don't have any Christian community. Read it in isolation and you will come up with bad doctrine. Guaranteed. That's solo scriptura, not sola scriptura. I need what I believe about the Bible and about God and how to live before Him to be anchored personally in my understanding of the Bible. Now, let me make two caveats. First, I am not saying that you should not trust the conclusions of Bible teachers, those who teach you the Bible. That would be deeply problematic in itself unbiblical. Okay? What I'm saying is this. That 99.9% .9 of the time, just trust me, is bad teaching. And I'm just going to believe what that person says is bad listening and learning. You should trust Bible teachers because they show it to you in the Bible. Doesn't matter how smart they are, how many letters come after their name how great of a communicator they are, how compassionate and kind they are for the disenfranchised, you should believe and trust Bible teachers insofar as they can consistently show you their conclusions in the Word of God, in the Bible. And how are you going to know if they're doing that if you don't know anything about the Bible? You're just going to be strung along, end up trusting people with foundational doctrines of the Christian life. Remember that, remember this is a great example. In Acts 17, you have Paul and Silas, the Apostle Paul and Silas, roll into Berea. And do you remember what they say about the Berean Christians? It says these Jews, so they're presenting the gospel that Jesus is a fulfillment of all these promises, says these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Well, why? Well, they had better character. Now, that's what it says. They may have, but that's not what it says. They received the word with all eagerness. Here's one hand. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So did they trust Paul and Silas' teaching? Yes. Did they mindlessly accept what they said simply because they said it? No. Because they knew that they had been given an infallible word from Yahweh. 
This wasn't them sitting in judgment on the apostles. This was them exercising discernment to make sure that they weren't being led astray. They understood the Bible and they were comparing what Paul said and who he in his testimony about who he was with what the Bible actually said. So that's the first caveat. I'm not saying that you should not trust Bible teachers. Everyone's theology has some trust built in to folks. That's part of it. That's why you have to read the Bible in Christian community. It's, it, it, it's uh, unavoidable. You've got to trust, trust some folks. But you should trust Bible teachers insofar as they can show it to you in the Bible and not just say, take my word for it, or assert things very confidently with unwavering confidence and dazzling vocabulary, and so you're just compelled to believe what they say. No. The second caveat is this. When I say take ownership of theology, I don't mean become a seminarian. Some of you are not book readers. Some of you don't like academics. Guess what? That's fine. John's audience wasn't any of those things either. So take heart. I'm not telling you to pick up a systematic theology. I'm not telling you to become a bookworm. I'm not telling you to have a view on every single doctrine. But you should be able to defend from Scripture yourself the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Okay, You should be able to articulate why you believe Jesus was God. Why you think He was also a man. If you had to defend why you believe the Trinity from the Bible, could you do it? Could you do it? If you had to explain why you believe the Bible is authoritative and inerrant, which is why it plays such a role in your life, could you do it? Could you do it? Or are you just taking someone's word for it? If you were called to explain why we should be expecting a physical resurrection of the body instead of some kind of disembodied existence staring at light for eternity, could you do it? If you were called upon to explain why despite the fact that Scripture does say Christ is reconciling the world to Himself, that people will spend eternity in hell. Could you do it? These are just foundational doctrines of Christian faith. This is not advanced. We're not talking about cosmic eschatology. We're not talking about divine decrees. We're not talking about cessation of spiritual gifts. These are just basic foundational truths about who God is and how to live in light of Him that you need to own for yourself. You need to press it. So you're saying this. Maybe because I know there's a couple of people sitting here saying, well, actually, at least in maybe a couple of those cases, I couldn't do that. And I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to encourage you. There is opportunity for you to press in and to learn these things. There are so many resources. This church is a tremendous resource to learn the Bible in. And I don't mean the pulpit ministry. I mean, we have people who know the Bible really well and have lived in light of it for a long time. So let me challenge you. Do not be the person who just always doesn't know. There are some people who are just almost professional I don't knowers. Or I'm just, you know, I don't know what to believers. Now, if that means that you're just always committed to growing, and I mean, okay, I understand that. I always want to be maturing. But if on certain doctrines you're just continually always don't know, well, do some things to get in the know. Do some things to figure that out. Talk with someone, read a book, pick up the scripture, and not in that order. 
Be intentional about it. Why? Okay, so why? Tyler, you're making a big deal. You're making a big deal about being able to really own your own theology. And it's because theology, believed but not personally owned, it doesn't stand up to challenges, especially when they occur in these relationally, emotionally charged contexts. I have watched so many people change their understanding of the truth faithfully proclaimed to them because of relationships, hurt, uncritically following some demagogue preacher, sticky personal situations, sexual orientation, social and political issues, unsatisfying marriages. What? Hold on, wait, let's call a timeout. Your theology changed on divorce because you have a hard marriage? The Word of God didn't change. Your theology concerning the sanctity of life changed because your daughter got pregnant? What? Your theology of sexuality changed because someone you know came out of the closet and you really like, you really care for them? Um, what? Your theology changed because of uh, uh, social and political issues? Folks, the Word of God doesn't change. I mean, just count me down for saying that with, with, I'm always willing to make exceptions and caveats, okay? But the vast majority of times, someone changes their theology because of circumstances. That person never owned that theology to begin with. They just believed it. They believed it because their parents said so. They believed it because their pastor said so. They believed it because their tradition said so. And provided those things aren't challenged and not challenged hard, there's just easy believism. That person, those people don't have conviction. Those people don't have, those aren't convictional beliefs for people. It's not, their, their belief is not deeply rooted in the Bible. It is merely believed. And when overwhelming feelings of tenderheartedness, anger, grief, or certain circumstances come knocking on their own door, they went, and sought, they went and sought out interpretations of the Bible that justified their action. And they came to a new understanding of things. Didn't they? Came to a new understanding. Yes, well, I've used to think this, but now I have a fuller perspective. Believe this instead. When challenges creep in and divisions start occurring in your family, in your friend group, in a church, God forbid, hopefully not ours, the way to not be shaken in what you have faithfully received is to own your own theology and not let someone represent it for you. Because... That is not a plan that will sustain challenge. I want to make one final point, and it relates to living in light of theology. And we see this in the folks who have gone out who are apparently characterized by John as hating their brothers. And this is particularly relevant to those who are raising children, but it's, every, it's relevant to everyone regardless. 
And that is theology that is believed, especially, again, especially by young people, but it applies to everybody. Theology that is believed but not owned will never hold up to passions and peer pressure. Theology that is merely believed but not owned will never hold up in the wake of passions and peer pressure. Sending a child off to college or just into the world, not in college, with a theology of sex, for example, that boils down to, the Bible says, don't have sex till you're married, will never hold up in the face of peer pressure and passions. Here's how that goes. In our case, this person has maybe gone off to school. They find themselves naturally with sexual desires. But guess what? Mommy and daddy aren't there. No. Mommy and daddy aren't there. They don't go back to their room in their house at night. They go back to their apartment or somebody else's. And somewhat, somehow or another, there's a young man or a young woman standing in front of them ready to give it all up. And if this person has the courage to awkwardly utter the phrase, I can't because the Bible says so, that person standing in front of them is going to say, well, the Bible says you're not supposed to wear clothes that have mixed threads. Do you do that? Uh, well, yeah, that's a good point. I guess I don't, I guess I don't abide by that part. Yeah, because I mean, the whole Bible isn't meant, meant to be you know, obeyed. Well, my parents said so. Well, it's because they don't want you to be a parent at 18. But we have everything in place to make sure to prevent that from happening. You don't need to worry about it. Well, well, my pastor said so. Well, your pastor's not here. Again, you know, make a fine point. He isn't here. In fact, no one's here. So why don't you just relax and let me do this? No, okay. And you're done. Am I wrong? I am not wrong. It's just one example. It could be multiplied. It doesn't have anything to do with being a college student. Theology that isn't owned doesn't ever stand up to peer pressure and passions. Theology that isn't owned doesn't stand up to sharp division in your family. Theology that isn't owned does not stand up to a culture causing people, calling people to compromise. And so here's the charge. I want us to be a people of the Bible. I want us to learn the Bible in community together, but such that our theology is our theology. It's not the theology of Pastor Tyler. It's not the theology of my parents, not the theology of my friends, but I want to be able to own my own theology so that I will not be shaken when division comes when hardship knocks on my front door, let's be a people who are prepared. Lord Jesus, help us. God, we pray that you would be merciful and guard our hearts. That you would lead us into understanding the person and work of Christ in a way that is our own and not a faith that we adopt through someone else. That we would, even now, Ask questions about where is it where I believe certain things just because I believe them? I don't have any biblical reason to. I've just been told this. Help us identify those growth opportunities 
Thank you for a, an inspired word that gives us the word of life. Help us press into it, even when it's hard. Meet with us in it. Teach us, Lord, we're thankful to have an anointing from the Holy One that guards our faith. So we have the freedom to learn without thinking that we don't know everything or second class or something. We're thankful for a union with Christ. We're thankful for a promised inheritance. Stir us to holiness, O God, and to truth, we ask in